The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Money in Your Life, the radio program that gives you the insight and motivation to be more successful with all aspects of your personal finances. Your hosts are Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. Today's program will feature experts and intriguing ideas that will show you how money is actually operating in your life. Now, here are Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. Good morning. You have Money in Your Life, a weekly show about the influence of money in your life. I'm Ann Hutchins. And I'm Brian Farr. Brian, I've been thinking a lot recently about words and how we use them. You know, the original meaning of the word wealth was an abundance of such possessions or resources to the benefit of a common good. But today, economists define wealth as anything of value. And likewise, the term influence is an abundant flow or supply or, wait for it, wealth. How do these terms come up in your work well, you know, when I think about the term wealth, um, when, when I look at my own life and the work I've chosen, I see that there's been a transformation in what that word means. In my 20s, I was a professional commodity trader. My primary goal was to make money because I thought money itself would provide happiness and security. Then in my 30s, I owned a personnel agency, and I interviewed over a 1,000 job applicants. Money and salaries were always part of those interviews. But quality of life and sense of connection and personal values were the driving driving forces for most people. Uh, the money itself was not enough. And then now as a financial coach, I'm very clear that wealth has many facets and multiple layers. You know, it's really interesting to ponder. Our guest today coined the term sudden wealth syndrome and has written the book, literally, on affluence intelligence. Joan Indersky DeFuria and her co-author Stephen Goldbart are pioneers in the work of helping us all discover how to balance our lives so that money is serving our values. Welcome, Joan, to Money in Your Life. A pleasure to be here, Anne and Brian. Well, we're really happy to have you. And, you know, I want to start out by talking about affluence intelligence and how you work with that in in your work with your clients what it actually is. Yeah, let me start by describing affluence intelligence and saying, you know, what we do is we, I'm going to give you a bit of a background, we really focus on challenges and opportunities of money and of wealth in our uh, Money, Media, and Choices Institute because we've worked with some of the most successful people in the country who've achieved a combination of both financial and personal success. And we begin to wonder, why is it that people who are not as super smart, haven't gone to the best Ivy League schools, or who may, in fact, have struggled with learning disorders, and came from very who came from very different family and economic circumstances, but ended up so wealthy and happy. So we started to ponder this, and was we spent more time with the truly affluent, as you mentioned, getting to know what makes them tick, 
we learned that they have this kind of certain something that we called affluence intelligence. And what it is is a mindset that makes people not just wealthy, but as you said, Brian, deeply fulfilled. What it's not, just having a bank account full of cash. Right. Yes. And so yes. we, be- we became fascinated with our clients who truly had money and happiness and what it was about them that made them tick beyond sheer luck and what they did that worked and what they did that didn't work. And so it really reflects exactly what you said, Brian, that people start out, some people start out because money is the be-all and end-all. But affluence intelligence is much more than that. Well, say a little bit more because in your book you describe the factors. You ask people to think about factors like uh, prosperity, for example, the things that are important to them in starting to figure out how affluent, intelligent people are. Well, I will do that, but let me give you an actually even a bigger umbrella picture to think about affluence intelligence because we have seven different elements of affluence intelligence and then I'll be happy to get into the priorities but this might help your listeners to look at I always like at the big picture so if we sit back and someone says what is affluence intelligence it sounds really good but what does it mean and there's seven different parts to affluence intelligence we talk about the seven elements the first one is having enough money to meet not only your needs but also your desires Now, for some, that doesn't mean having a million dollars in your bank account. There are people here who may feel that being able to feed their children, pay their bills, and go to bed and not worry about money because their needs are not to buy a house. Their needs are not to buy two cars. Their needs are not to go on vacation. They're happy camping. They're happy doing simple things in life. If it meets their needs, whatever their needs are, whether it's 10 homes or a tent, right. if it meets their needs and some of their desires, that's about having enough money. Mm-hmm. Obviously, okay. we need enough money for necessities to eat, medical care, a roof over our heads, but it's relatively easy to calculate exactly how much money that is. What's difficult is to calculate how much we need for non-necessities what we desire, what makes us feel like we're living a rich life that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with money. Mm -hmm. So that's number one. Number two is doing work you like so much that you lose track of time. Most of our clients talk about, you know, an old term we use, being in the zone. Exactly. Sometimes it's about work you would do even if you weren't paid. I'm blessed. I love my work. I need to make money. I'm supporting my children but and myself. But I happen to be lucky enough to do work where I do lose track of time. It's work that engages and satisfies us at a very deep level. Mm -hmm. You know, being sometimes so caught up, you're in what psychologists would call the flow. Right. Right. Okay. That's what uh, th- that's the um, uh, Csikszentmihalyi's work that there's this exactly. has really been been researched that, that that losing track of time is an indicator of, of being absorbed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's a great place to be in. Exactly. Chick- he's a great um, psychologist, philosopher, and we talk a lot about him. So um, I totally agree. The third one is having relationships that bring you joy. And affluence means having relationships that work well for you, make you satisfied, whether at home or at work. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if you have lots of relationships or a few. Introverts, Introverts, we know, have fewer relationships than extroverts. So it's just spending time with others that, you know, others that don't deplete you, 
that fulfill you and recharge you. Um, and it's not one is better than the other. Somebody who has 100 friends, isn't, it's not necessarily better than having two friends. It just means having positive relationships that where you have a rich set of friends. Um, I, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And part of those relationships are not relationships that are fraught with hardship, right? So right. it really is relationships that feed you and give you something. Now, it doesn't mean relationships aren't, aren't a struggle at times, but overall, if you sit back, you say, you know, I'm really getting something out of this relationship. The next one is being safe in mind and body. And this is really an attitude in life. It's really feeling comfortably safe and secure, which we think is a crucial element to having a rich life because we know there are people with millions of dollars in the bank account. You take Howard Hughes, who lived as a very paranoid man at the end of his life. So no matter how much money he had in his bank account, he was a paranoid. He didn't trust people. He, in fact, he used to wear, he used to wear white gloves, you know, right. because he was afraid of touching things. And he had a, like a plexiglass floor at the end of his life so he could look down below to see what people were doing. It's quite a, you have to take a breath. Yeah, but I hadn't heard that detail. About, yeah, being affluent means achieving sufficient peace of mind so that you can sleep well at night, not be kept awake anxiously worrying about what might happen in the future, or ruminating regretfully about how you have dealt with money in the past. So it, that, that sense it, to us is priceless. Yes, Because money won't take away anxiety, it doesn't take away pain, it doesn't take away fear, but that sense of feeling, that sense of security inside of oneself really is priceless. You know, so and I, I have to, if, if I can jump right in, that please. particular one, the one you've just described, that one goes so far against this idea that money itself, when we talk about Howard Hughes and the amount of money that he had, but he was missing out on this one that you've just described, the sense of safety and security. Exactly, and that's why when we coined the term sudden wealth syndrome, the media world went crazy because what came up was how can people with so much money yeah. Money that everybody, you know, dreams of. How could these people have problems? But the reality is it doesn't take away sickness. It doesn't take away pain. It doesn't take away psychological anxiety. It doesn't allow people to feel safe or secure or better off. Um, number five is having power. Now, there's two types of power in the world, which I talk about when I do my workshops. One is personal power and one is um, social power. Personal power is I win, you lose. Kind of the bully personal power. Social power is that we both win. So okay. people use personal power to attain their needs and wants. And, you know, you look at um, power as a product of one's personal certainty, one's sense of tenacity, a clarity of vision, sense of integrity. So when people have personal power, they're very conscious of how they exercise their power and how it impacts others, really using care to foster positive and constructive outcomes. Really, personal power is about respecting the rights of others and not using power and service of many means to an end. So really, it's a sense of agency in the world that I feel capable of getting what I want in a way that's healthy for me and healthy for the other person, speaking up for myself. Uh, You know, power has a very strong uh, response set. But when I talk about power, it really is with great respect for both parties. In India, wisdom is power. In certain traditions, education is power. You know, in our world, money has been seen as power. But, you know, in this country, when you have money, people listen to you. 
You control the purse strings. You control the shots. It puts you in a different place. We know that. But being respectful of that, you know, you have to, people need to understand that power does not necessarily mean that you have good self-esteem, that you get love you want. And healthy power offers you a freedom of choice and a sense of Mm -hmm. autonomy and potency. Mm-hmm. It doesn't give you the right to bully or lead or use your purse strings. Right. Joan, as you're, we, we're now, this is the fifth of the seven points that you're describing. Um, and this one seems the most intangible. Mm-hmm. Uh, Say more, Brian. I'm, I'm just, as I, as I listen to you describe this one, it is like there's, there's a sense of uh, an individual needs to have a sense of security within themselves, I believe. In order to to how without that the the power isn't going to have a, a solid foundation. A sense of self esteem, a sense of security, a sense of a really great sense of respect for other people that have nothing to do with their title, their money, their looks. It really is who is the person from the inside. So if you look at a person as power that gains recognition and respect in the community, it could be a person who's a corporate captain. It could be a community organizer. It could be a teacher. It could be a spiritual leader. It has nothing to do with what you have in your bank account. Mm-hmm. But it has something to do with having a significant impact and influence influence on others and what matters to you and is important to you with a sense of, you know, I go back to the word integrity. You know, okay. you, can't, you can't buy integrity, and you can't know integrity, but if you live it, you can feel it, and no one can take it away from you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, as a professional, do you feel it's possible to help people move in this direction, to help people develop this, what we're describing right now? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, when I do corporate work, I do leadership development, certainly I have to work with a lot of people who have what they call personalized power. They really have been taught and believe that if they – because of their authority, they can say and do anything they want. And maybe bullying people or being mean to people is a way to get them to act. But so there's on one side, it's really teaching people about a sense of respect and old ways of bullying are not acceptable or appropriate in the workplace or at home. It's not acceptable behavior, period, the end. Mm-hmm. Then in terms of having power, that sense of agency, we're going to talk about that. And that that's something that's a psychological piece that needs to be developed over time. So if someone comes from a family when they've been abused mentally, physically, their sense of self-esteem is going to be bruised. Right. So the work with that person might take a little bit longer. Can it change? Absolutely. You know, I'm a therapist, psychotherapist, mm-hmm. so I wouldn't be in this world if I didn't believe people can change. And uh, I wouldn't have written this book if I didn't believe people can change. So, you know, depending on one's past, it might take longer to develop a sense of personal power, but absolutely. Okay. No question okay. in my mind. Well, Joan, we've got about three or four minutes until we take a break. Shall we go on to the uh, the next point? Yes, absolutely, next... because the next one's my very favorite. Excuse me, my next one's my very favorite, which is number six: living a life that has meaning and purpose. You know, you talked about being commodity trader. Well, in fact, I was in commodities in my first eighteen years of life, and uh-huh. I loved it. But I got to a point where I thought, you know what, this just doesn't do it for me anymore. You know, I need something more in my life, and so. Meaning and purpose speaks for itself. It doesn't have to be in your work life. It can be in other, in other ways. But having a sense of meaning and purpose is its own kind of wealth. Manage your time, managing your time effectively 
can create a very rich and balanced life that goes far beyond simply making, saving, and spending money. It's more than just having time. It means having a sense of agency, being in command of your time, leading a life that's aligned with what you value most. So how we spend our time in order to live a rich life in meaning and satisfaction will change as we get older and comes back to what you said at the beginning, Brian, which is looking at our core values. And you know what? Time is the one commodity that money can't buy. So how we want to spend our time as we get older is very important. And last but not least is maximizing physical and emotional health. No matter where we are, no matter what we have in our life, whether we're healthy or sick, because we hear often health is everything, but maximize our health requires working our personal baseline. It varies with age, it varies with our capacities, and our physical and health issues. Mm -hmm. But you can still maximize a sense of physical and emotional well-being no matter what. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to stop there out of respect for time. We're we're okay. We have thank you for that. Uh, But we have just another couple minutes here. This last one that you mentioned, it seems like people can get themselves caught up in that one when they don't base when they're not working off their personal baseline, maximizing physical health compared to celebrities they might see in a magazine or on TV, rather than being aware of where their body is at, what's the reality of their age, and then what's uh, realistic in the in that. with those facts. Well, we have to keep calibrating, you know, that yeah. our, our sense of physical, emotional well-being with the reality of as we get older. It's coming to terms with that. But if you can't come to terms with that, it's going to be very hard to feel safe in mind and body, right? Mm-hmm. We go back to the other elements. And it really is, look, I work with people who have Parkinson's. I work with people who have MS. And Part of maximizing their physical and emotional health is their sense of agency about what they can do about it. It's not easy. It doesn't mean they should feel great. It's a matter of wherever we are at in our lives. You know, I had a mom who died of cancer. Her attitude was absolutely incredible. She taught me so much, Brian, by watching her attitude. It wasn't that she was in denial, but we'd leave chemo, and I'd say, let's go home, Mom. I'll put you to bed. She goes, no, I want to go shopping. I want to buy some food for dinner, and I'd look at her like she was crazy, but she taught me something. And, you know, whether, you're, whether you come from wanting just a better body or wanting to look younger or wanting to, you know, build up your muscles or wanting to be able to come to terms with an illness that you have, um, it takes a quite a, it's a dynamic process that requires lifelong work and lifelong maintenance. Yep. But what's important is how we contend with the prospect of where we're at the illness we have, the health we have, and the aging that we all have to deal with. None of us are going to escape this. You know, right. none of us can get out of this door. We all have to face it. But it is maximizing physical and emotional health wherever we are. And that takes, Indeed. for some people, it takes a lot more than others, depending on the cards they're dealt in life. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we need to take a pause now, and we'll be back. Uh, I know that you've spoken in your book about specific action plans, step-by-step plans, and we're going to come back and talk some more about that. Um, If you would like to join our conversation, please call 866-472-5790, or else you can email us, moneyinyourliferadio at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Brian Farr with my co-host Ann Hutchins, and you have Money in Your Life.
comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The goal of financial coaching is to open up the conversation around money with your spouse, your children, or your extended family. Ann Hutchins works with individuals, families, and financial professionals to improve relationships with money. Her work with clients is confidential, honest, and fun. Visit Ann's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.abhutchins.com. That's abhutchins.com. Do you have financial goals for yourself? Do you want to be smart with money in all areas of your life? If you're ready to become more effective with your personal finances, then you might be ready to hire a financial coach. Since 2002, Brian Farr has helped hundreds of people improve their relationship with money. He's unbiased, honest, and approachable. If you'd like to learn more about financial coaching, visit Brian's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.brianhfarr.com. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Money in Your Life with Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to moneyinyourliferadio at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. I'm Ann Hutchins with my co-host, Brian Farr, and our guest today is Joan DeFuria. Today we're talking about affluence intelligence, and Joan, before we start again, I want to re-mention your book, this fabulous Affluence Intelligence, which you co-wrote with Stephen Goldbart, and it is available through Amazon and also through your Money, Meaning, and Choices website. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Yeah, good. Joan, I want to pick up where we dropped off talking about health. And one of the things that struck me in your conversation as I was listening to what you were saying was there, there is such a confusion of choices about health and what's good for you, what's not good for you, how much exercise, how little exercise, which is very similar to choices around money, what to do with money, and this broader definition of wealth. Can you talk a little bit about how you work through those choices with clients or how you internalize this process with clients? Yeah, I'm thinking for a moment, Anne. What I would say, I'm going to answer that, but then I'm going to go back to the bigger picture because it ties into the, what Brian asked is, what do we do then about this? Yeah. And I think I'll answer your question going a little more broadly and then getting very specific, but let me start just answering that. You know, everybody comes in with different issues and I mean, we get 75-year-olds in my office who look and feel better and are healthier than some stressed-out 40-year-olds or people who are so concerned about, you know, exactly how their body looks. But it is a state of mind. And so I'm going to answer that by getting very specific, which is in one of our – we talk about attitudes and behaviors when we talk about affluence intelligence, and I'll go over those today. One of those is taking control over one's life. It's an attitude. 
right? So part of that has to do with willingness to take responsibility for himself, having a strong sense of identity, and what we call psychological mindedness, which is, of course, a pet peeve of mine, which is how we think about ourselves, how we prioritize things in our life, what we make is important. Um, and so that's going to have to do with what you just asked. You know, part of what what we look at, what we eat, what we do for ourselves, feeling, if, if we go back to um, living a life that maximizes physical and emotional health, that means you're not just thinking about it. You have to do something about it. But what does it mean to have maximized physical and emotional health? For some people, that means working out three hours a day. For some people, it might mean walking 20 minutes a day. Everybody knows if we look at our, our research, that there's a certain amount we need to do for what I call our baseline of health. And then there's the bell curve, and there are people who work outside of the bell curve. I don't have any judgment about what people do as long as they're doing something that's safe and healthy for them, and they create some balance in the life that comes back to what we call their personal priorities. So I perhaps can answer that question by answering both your questions, which is, what do we do about this? How do we take action on affluence intelligence? And part of that has to do with determining what our priorities are. So we have what we call the affluence intelligence quiz, and part of that is looking at what are our priorities. For some, Anne, it might be their priority is taking care of their body and being very, very specific about the foods they eat and what they do every day. For other people, it might be about developing more money. For others, it might be wanting more peace in their lives. So I'm going to step back and make sure I'm on the right track. And if you're ready, I'll go into what those priorities are that we ask people to look at when taking the affluence intelligence quiz. Yeah, before we do that, though, we have a call. And I wonder if this is a good time to take a call or if you want to go through those and then take the call. Um, I'm going to leave that up to you. Okay. All right. Well, Let's go ahead and bring the caller in. Yeah, see what see what gets added in. to the mix here. Yeah, let's bring the caller in and see what uh, see what we have. We have a caller, Jean from Portland. Good morning, Jean. Good morning. Thank you. Um, I'm so intrigued by the power of the specific things that you've mentioned, and I'm thinking about how I have tried to work towards some of these over the course of my life and have failed. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you have any suggestions about how people can work against their own sort of tendency to maybe not follow through? I love your question, and we're going to get to that. I can't answer it all now, but if you keep listening, I will. The short answer to that, Jean, is, and thank you for your honesty, is that because we, Stephen is a psychologist, I'm a psychotherapist, we do something a little bit different in our book, and we answer that question, which is not only what you can do, but what what is it that keeps people stuck doing the same thing over and over again, even though they know it doesn't work for them? And the highlight of that is what we call one's defenses. And in our book, there's a chapter on defenses. And what we have you do is go through the defenses one by one to look at what defenses are you using that get in the way. One example might be avoidance. Another example might be not having a strategic plan. Another example might be... Um, being affected by personal history, right? So, you know, when we, defenses are coping mechanisms that sometimes work for us and sometimes don't. And I think it's 
if you listen in the call, I will answer that because it's part of this whole package I'm going to be talking about. But it's a great piece, and if we know it allows us to fail, then we need someone to help us get over that hump. And the first thing we have to do is be aware. What is it that we continually do that makes us fail? And the second thing we do is we need to then take action and manage those failures or manage those defenses in order to move forward. Sometimes we can do them by ourselves. Sometimes we need a buddy. We need a group. We need a supporter, a mentor, a guide. So if you'll be patient enough, I will get to those today. Great. Thank you. Great. So so let's go on to that. And, you know, as you go through, if you talk about some of the work that you do, meaning uh, where you sort out with people, where they can do things alone, how they define a sustainable plan for themselves. Exactly. Because one of our pieces here is if you don't have a strategic plan, it's not going to happen. Great. This isn't going to happen. The real, there's a reality which we have to do stuff we don't like doing. So my clients complain, I hate doing this stuff. I said, yeah, me too. But you know what? If you want X over here, you got to do it. If you want a diet, don't eat the cookie. If you want a muscle, lift the weight. If you want to make, if you want to make, you know, more friends in the world, get out there and be social. So, uh, let, let's go back to the first thing we need to look at. To be honest with ourselves, is we do something very interesting, calling looking at our priorities, and we look at six different priorities. And in the first part of the text, the test, we look at priorities are something that gives one direction and energy to our choices. And I did this for myself. It was very interesting. So let me go over the six priorities. And as I talk about these, I hope you and your listeners will look at what are your priorities in your life today. And so one is prosperity, which is generating and managing money for your needs and your wants. Very simple. And for some people, that means making so much $10 an hour. For some people, it means making $1,000 an hour. No judgment. Remember, it goes back to needs and wants. The second priority is people which is creating and maintaining important social relationships with friends and family. How important is people to you over prosperity? The next is productivity, which are two different factors. One is productivity at work, doing the activities that actually earn you a living. The other productivity is doing activities outside your normal job that may or may not earn you money. Now, productivity could be lying in a hammock. People go, well, that's not being productive. Well, it could be productive. It's recharging you. Well, productivity, it's it's an important point, is to revisit what you think of as productivity because you may be carrying around your parents' story of what productivity is, right? Exactly, and brilliant, yes. Because when people, I say resting could be productivity, reading a book, watching TV, you know, growing roses, that can be productive even though it's not doesn't look as productive as somebody riding a bicycle or running a marathon. Productivity is anything that restores and recharges you. It's healthy for you. The next one, which I love, is passion, which is bringing excitement and joy to your life. What is it? All of us callers can go. Some people don't have passion. Some people just don't. But there's a majority of people who can tell me today, what makes you passionate? What do you want to get up and do? If you're not depressed, what's your passion? And the last one is peace, which is doing things that bring you contentment, satisfaction, and equanimity. You know, no different than you, Brian, when you said, you know, I was done with commodities and now I want to be a financial coach. Well, there's a reason for that. That may bring you peace. It may bring you passion. It may bring you productivity. might bring all of these things to you. But the hard piece here is you actually have to prioritize. So when I was doing this, I started out this, and, you know, it's one through six. You have to prioritize today where you are, and the other piece of this is in one year, where do you want to be? Not fantasy-wise, but reality-wise. 
So if you tell me you want to be a billionaire in one year, I'm going to say, okay, that's not reality, so let's go back to the chart. What I learned about myself when I went through this and I had my business partner over my shoulder, I realized that even though I thought I wanted to put productivity last, given who I am, getting up at 6 in the morning to do this radio show, I'm really into productivity. (laughs) I actually (laughs) like being productive. I had to keep that as number one. When I thought peace was number one, but I actually love productivity. So that came up over peace for me. So what you want to do is have people score what's number one, what's number two for today and for tomorrow. Well, the important thing, too, that you have raised is that it's a great idea to do this with a buddy or with a coach so that you have somebody who's saying, really, really, Joan, is peace really your number one? Right. Yeah. Exactly. When Steve and I did this together, the other person, the co-author of the book and the co-founder of the Institute, we looked over each other's shoulder and he said, Joan, you love doing things. Your list, even on Sundays, is really long. I said, you know, you're right. Because I said, I want to do pieces, number one. He goes, but this isn't the time in your life. You've got two kids you're putting through college, you know. This isn't the time in your life, but having a buddy is great. So the first thing you want to do is rank your current weekly activities in order of priority. That's step number one. Number two is one year from today, how would you like your weekly activities prioritized in one year? But the the piece here is you have to be realistic. I'm not interested in fantasy. I'm interested in what's realistic. If it's not realistic, I don't put it on the map. Mm -hmm. So I ask your callers to be realistic about this. Mm -hmm. If I can just, one of the things that, uh, that strikes me, too, is you have to know how you spend your time. Yes. So there may be a step before this that that has you just looking at, wow, how did I spend my time last week or today? Yeah, it's a great piece. It just reminds me of someone who is telling a friend, wow, you know, my friend's a, a, a wonderful writer, and one of her friends said, man, I love writing. I wish I could write with you. I just don't have the time. Well, when she broke down her time, the woman who was complaining, what she realized is she spent two hours every night watching TV. So we were able to say, you know, you're envious of your friend who writes books, but she doesn't watch TV two hours a night. No judgment. But if you really thought that was a priority, guess what would happen? You'd give up something else Mm -hmm. in order to make that happen. So it all works together. If I can jump in here, there's there's something, two things that you're talking about here. I love your phrase, we have to do stuff we don't want to do. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that's that, those moments when we make the choice to lay on the couch and watch TV and it turns into two hours, or we don't lay down, we turn around, we do something in the kitchen, we do something outside, we, whatever it might be that, that, that gives us that sense of productivity. Those are the, those are probably the most key moments and that ties back to what you were saying is awareness. It's awareness, and also let me say, I'm not judging the person who watches TV because it may be restorative to someone, but Mm -hmm. it is a matter of really being aware of one's choices, that if you do want to write a book, if you in one year want to look back and say, you know, I regret I just didn't write that journal or that book or ride the bike, then you have to look at what your caller said. What what allowed that to fail? What did you do? And that means really raising your awareness of as you say, being aware of what choices you're making during the day. It really is, what am I doing this moment? And I now, having written this book, I look all the time, do I want to do this? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm doing that automatic. I'm so productive, I'm ready to go. I had to learn to go, do I want to do this? Is this, mm-hmm. is this something I need to be doing? And part of it is 
it's part of maturity and growing up to say, look, there are things we do need to do. Sometimes I don't want to do things, but I really need to. Other times it's a choice point. Do mm-hmm. I want to be doing this because I always do it, or do I want to be doing this because I really want to do it? Well, and the other piece of it that, that you raise, which is really important, is do I want to do this? And do I want to do this because I think I should do this? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, taking that judgment out of how you're spending your time, as you said, is really important. It's really important. Right. It's really important. I mean, I think there are times to judge and there are times not to judge. So what I say is, what is the value of what I'm doing? And maybe watching TV gives me the value of just shutting my brain down and it's my way of relaxing. Maybe writing a book is valued. Maybe talking to your children is a value. Maybe sitting and meditating is a value. Or maybe going out and pounding the pavement for a job is a value. Some of them are needed and some of them are choice points. But it's always worthy of stepping back and saying, where does this fit into my life? And so the the person who continues to fail, maybe it's because they just don't want to do that thing they have to do. You know, but part of growing up and part of getting mature, gaining maturity We look at mature defenses, immature defenses, common defenses, mature defenses often help us do the things we don't want to do. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, the the whole issue of failing, not failing, you're not, you're making choices all along the way. Exactly. You're not not reaching your goals. And then you you fall back and you say, well, wow, how did I prioritize this? Or was my plan realistic? Exactly. And so in part of our book, we help people make up a plan. And what we do is after you look at the first step is, excuse me, let me let me go back. There are four key areas necessary to unlock one's affluence intelligence. And we talk about unlocking it because we all have that key internally. Joan, Joan, let me jump in. We've got about two minutes till break. So you might need to give us the first piece of this now. I'm going to give you all four right now, and then we'll talk about them after the break. Four key areas. One, priorities. We just discussed priorities. The next is looking at our behaviors, the ways in which we act that foster or impede our progress in getting what we want. The third is our attitude, based on positive and negative feelings and beliefs and predispositions about ourselves. And the last is financial effectiveness, which is both includes financial competency and financial ease. Those are the four areas that need to be unlocked in order to gain affluence intelligence. Did I make it in two minutes? You certainly did, and now I am intrigued. You're saying that priorities, behaviors, attitude, and financial effectiveness, that if if I, if our listeners can get a handle on these four, then we're on the pathway to financial, or uh, uh, excuse me, to uh, affluence intelligence. Yes, and we'll go over in specific what some of those look like after the, after the break, if you'd like to go that far. Yes, yes, that sounds good. Okay, so let's go ahead and take a break now. Um, if you would like to join our conversation, please call us, 866-472-5790, or email moneyinyourliferadio at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Brian Farr with co-host Ann Hutchins, and you have Money in Your Life. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
Do you have financial goals for yourself? Do you want to be smart with money in all areas of your life? If you're ready to become more effective with your personal finances, then you might be ready to hire a financial coach. Since 2002, Brian Farr has helped hundreds of people improve their relationship with money. He's unbiased, honest, and approachable. If you'd like to learn more about financial coaching, visit Brian's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.brianhfarr.com. The goal of financial coaching is to open up the conversation around money with your spouse, your children, or your extended family. Ann Hutchins works with individuals, families, and financial professionals to improve relationships with money. Her work with clients is confidential, honest, and fun. Visit Ann's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.abhutchins.com. That's abhutchins.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Money in Your Life with Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You may also send an email to moneyinyourliferadio at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. I'm Brian Farr with my co host, Ann Hutchins, and our guest, Joan DeFuria. Uh, Joan has, uh, with her partner, have, has written a book called Affluence Intelligence. It can be found on Amazon as well as on their website. And we are in the midst of talking about what to me sounds like the, the real key issues. Right before the break, we to- spoke about priorities, behaviors, attitude, and financial effectiveness. Joan, tell us more about these if you would. Right. Um Priorities we talked about, which is what gives you direction, energy, behaviors, how, what ways and how you behave that foster impede progress, attitudes or beliefs. So let's just start talking about them. Let me give you an example because when we take the test, the first thing you're going to do is take a test to learn your strengths and vulnerabilities in each of these areas. So let's look at attitudes and behaviors. The attitudes and behaviors that will affect your affluence intelligence are things like your ability to work hard, that's your behavior, resilience which is knowing when to cut your losses, the ability to get over things, willingness to learn from mistakes. Another one is open-mindedness and curiosity. Um, Another is interpersonal effectiveness. Having control over one's life is an attitude. Another attitude is optimism. And a few more. One is a sense of assertiveness in the world, your ambition in the world, and financial competency, which is different than the last one I'll speak about, which is financial ease. And we ask you to take your total score in attitudes and behaviors because it will stand out and tell you where you're strong or where you're weak, which will add to your overall score. Okay, let me, let me jump in and catch up with you here. You so bet. there's, there's a, in the book, Affluence Intelligence, our listeners can, can take this test that will help, that will show them where they're at now on these four, in these areas. Is exactly. That correct? It will show their strengths and vulnerabilities in each of these areas. It will measure their capacity, highlighting their strengths, and mm-hmm. highlighting what gets in their way and what areas require change. Okay. 
Okay. And I'm assuming that's a, a, a little quiz. Is that quiz online yet? I, I think you mentioned that you're hoping online. to get it. There's, no, there's a sample quiz online in our mmcinstitute.com website under the title Affluence Intelligence. We have a sample quiz on financial competency and financial ease, and we're hoping to get a test up for everyone, no charge, in the next month. Okay. That's a great service. Can we, Joan, can we focus a little bit on the financial ease and financial competency? I'd love to because this is what shows talk about all the time. And the reason we separate it out is because having competency is different than ease. We have people who have great financial competency, but they're not at ease with their money. So let me give you an example of competency. Competency is the stuff most people don't like to do when they go to financial coaches. That's why they come to you, because they have to keep a budget. They have to live within their means. They have a backup emergency fund for themselves and their family. They look at their bank statements and balance their checkments. Ugh, who wants to do that? But that's competency. They read and understand their credit card statements. They save for retirement. They plan for saving, spending, and sharing. And they understand the basics of the American marketplace know how much money they have, know how much money they spend, know what they need for and their wants. That's competency. That's bare, basic, paying attention to the facts that most of us really don't want to do. In fact, we hire bookkeepers or financial planners if we're lucky enough, and some people don't even open up their statements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah <laughs> yep. that's, okay. the, that's the task part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now not opening their statements have to do with financial ease. So financial ease, the positive is people with financial ease, they make money decisions by careful analysis rather than by impulse. So they're not going to buy that wonderful X, Y, Z because it just feels so good. They're going to know if it fits into their budgeting plan. They know. Their financial status doesn't cause them shame or embarrassment or guilt because they're feeling at ease with what they have. How much money they have does not determine their sense of self-esteem. They don't mix up self-worth with financial worth. They're comfortable and free to do what they want with their money, even if they don't have a lot. They know they can afford to go to, everybody talks about Starbucks coffee, right? They know they can afford that Starbucks coffee once a month or once a week or once a day. They feel they have the right to make financial decisions. Men and women, we speak to women on this because many women say, you know, my, my husband makes the money or I make the money. Who gets to make the financial decisions? We still hear that today that they're comfortable having conversations about money matters in close relationships. It doesn't mean opening up their bank statement, but they're comfortable enough to even to say, you know what, that's none of your business. Money's not the primary motivator of their most important life decisions. They're comfortable with themselves, even with people who have more money or less money. And when a person has nicer things than they do, they don't feel inferior or overly envious. That's financial ease. And if you have financial ease, you're more likely to open up your financial statements. Yeah, and keep your yeah. back. It's re- very different because there are people who are very wealthy, but they're so uncomfortable with their wealth. They hide. They're ashamed. They feel guilty. They don't tell the people the truth. They would say they went to, went to Goodwill when they could go to Bloomingdale's, or they say they go to Bloomingdale's when they really went to Goodwill. So that that sense of financial ease is something that's not often talked about, but that's the psychological side of money. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, that's true across the financial spectrum. Absolutely. That's That's why there are people who have lots of money and just say, won't tell people the truth about, I mean, we have people who are extremely wealthy who will say they're school teachers, which is a wonderful profession. Don't get me wrong. I think it deserves a huge amount of money, but they'll, they'll say they're school teachers and they will 
lie about the vacations they're taking because it's embarrassing or shameful for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 These are these are deep seated issues that you're talking about. I, I think Very it nice. might come back to what uh what our caller uh what Jean's asked around um so let's say a person becomes aware of what you're describing. They've gone mm-hmm. through the test. They've gotten a sense of, okay, this is a vulnerability. This is an area that I need to make some changes. So now this is where the rubber meets the road. This is, this exactly. is what, what would need to occur. Right. You've done your test. There's a, uh, we then have an action plan of what you can do about it. But the next part of this test, which is exactly what your caller talked about, is the next part of this test is learning how you get in your own way. We all get in our own ways at times. How do our psychological defenses affect our affluence intelligence quotient? How do our psychological defenses affect us in our life? So when it comes to affluence, we all have a baseline we consider normal. It's based on what we believe is true, our personality predispositions, and our social construction of reality, right? So our habits may have served us in the past, but now, and I speak to your caller, may be the very obstacle to our success. Hmm. So when we talk about defenses, and let me describe that for your audience, because people say, well, you know, what are defenses? We always think defenses are bad, but that's really not true, Um but defenses we talk about, and of course you know this, they're, they're coping mechanisms. And they're, yeah. they're specific, it's how we maintain certain habits and ways of thinking that keep us the way we are or the way we've always been. They're patterns and behaviors that are sometimes comfortable to us, even if they're not good for us, but maybe getting in our way of change. Mm-hmm. So defenses are coping mechanisms. And, they're, and you know what's interesting about habits? That... Um, because we do something that's com- we think it's comfortable, so it's okay. But just because it's comfortable does not necessarily it mean it's good for us. This is paradoxical <laughs> thinking. So mm-hmm. most of us do what we're comfortable doing, even if it doesn't serve us well. Right. Which mm-hmm. inhibits growth and inhibits change. So when we talk about defenses, some of the defenses we're talking about are denial, avoidance, magical thinking, projection, or what we call having a low setting on our thermostat. I'm happy to go through some of these, but I think what's important for the audience to hear is that we all do this. And some defenses are good. So when we get bad news, sometimes we're in denial because our brain can't take in the bad news. That's not a bad defense. It's only bad for us when we stay in denial. So we're told we have to t- we have asthma, and we don't want to hear it, and our brain goes, it's too much for me to take in. But once we take it in, we need then to take action and do something about it. We're told we have diabetes. We're told that, you know, our friend is sick. Well, we get, we avoid. Don't want to go near that. Don't want to talk about it. Eventually, we need to not act on our avoidance. We need to do something against what's comfortable for us and step up to the plate, you know, do the right thing, be a friend. Well, one of, yeah, exactly. One of the things that we know from from a lot of recent science is that the brain takes a bit to change organically. The brain knows yeah. what it knows in the past, but it doesn't know in the future. So it takes time. And in your book, you talk about this being at least a three-month process. Yeah, you know, there's so much research now being done in brainstem psychology and the brain grooves that we develop and our brain grooves develop when we do the same thing over and over again. Not necessarily bad, but brain grooves can be changed. And this has been shown um, on MRIs, which yeah. is really exciting new information for all of us, which means they have proven scientifically that we can make changes. 
And so what we have done for our audience in our book is we realize that people love to be able to have a strategic plan, but people don't necessarily know how to do that themselves. So in our book, we do go through a three-month strategic plan, really just looking at setting goals, sitting down and setting, I like the realistic goals. And an example might be if you know that you're, you know, we talk about what's your goal. So let's say financial competency. Let's take, take, take something that's really reflects your station and your work. Learning the financial basics or creating a budget. So an action step in month one might be buying a book on financial basics, committing to an evening class once a month, or identifying a buddy to help, help you. Action on month two is drafting a budget plan and get help as needed and implementing that plan to make changes. Action mm-hmm. number three might be meeting with a friend or an advisor to review your budget and consider future financial planning. Mm-hmm. Then on your list of action plans, you want to look at your defenses. I'm a procrastinator. I space out or I tell myself a false story. You need to look at how those defenses get in your way and move past them in order to reach success. That's, that's one example. Mm-hmm. This is a brilliant system you've put together because it's, it's, it's contained uh, and it's actionable. People can if 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 a person exactly. were to start on this process, I can imagine that they will. You get a lot of people who follow through and get results. Well, what happens is that you take that test. You actually list all the desired areas for change based on the test you took. Then you put your goal down, and then you take your action plans. And being having come from the business background, if you don't have matrix and timeframes and very specific, strategic, realistic, doable action plans, it's not going to happen. Yep. That's right. That's not going to happen. And it's not going to stay the same forever. So starting a process where you're reviewing on a periodic basis is a really important thing to do. Yeah, and, you know, the, the, the key is to just act on it, and the key is to make it realistic and doable. Often people want to impress us. They'll say, oh, I'll get my budget done tomorrow. And I'll say, well, will you really get it done tomorrow? No. I said, what's real? <laughs> well, maybe a month. I said, would you do it in a month? Well, I can really do it in a month. So you have to put down what is realistic and doable for you. And it doesn't mean you don't push yourself, but to implement this and to make it happen, you need to do this plus go back to what your caller said is look at realistic defenses. We all use it and without judgment. You know, the, the key here is not to judge yourself, mm-hmm. not to look at this and get overwhelmed. It's to make it doable. And, you know, what I say is take the judgments and put them outside of the room while you're doing this. And keep assuming success. I love assume success. Assume it will happen, and it won't fail yet again. Yeah, you know, I had a friend who used to say, when I think of something and and I have a wall in front of me, I think of taking the pieces of the wall out one at a time, and pretty soon the wall is down and the fresh air blows through. That's lovely. And other of our clients think of blowing that wall down and just banging through it. Everybody has their own way to do it. But in this book, it really does cater to it's one step at a time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One step That's at a time, exciting. but it really means taking action at each step because every little step you act on should feel successful to you. If it doesn't feel successful, go back to your defenses. Mm-hmm. One mm-hmm. would be all or nothing thinking. Oh, I didn't do the whole thing, so it's all bad. I'm going to give it up. That's black and white all or nothing thinking. That's a defense that gets in your way. Yep. Yeah. Right? Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Well, we are getting near the end of our hour together. Um, 
Joan, thank you so much. This has been this is uh, I, I'm, it's fascinating, and I'm also very excited because I know from my experience how this kind of thing can work. What you've described, Joan's book is called Affluence Intelligence. You can find it on Amazon, and I highly recommend it. Um, next week we have our let's see what are we doing next week? Financial coaching. That's what we're doing. It's our last show of the year. Um, we take a look at how financial coaching works for a wide variety of people. We're going to use different scenarios, explore what's underneath the issues, and we're going to bring our audience in as if you were sitting in the room with us as financial coaches. So join us next week. Thank you for listening today. I'm Brian Farr. And I'm Ann Hutchins, wishing everybody the happiest of holidays. Please join us next week. And in the meantime, keep the conversation going because you have money in your life. Thank you for making money in your life part of your financial plan this week. Please join your hosts, Ann Hutchins and Brian Farr, again next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.